Hello, welcome to the new podcast series, King of the Middle, with Michael Joel Green and Chris Moore. Here's Michael Green. Hi, my name is Michael Green. This is my friend Chris Moore, and we are the host of the King of the Middle podcast. Podcasts exploring what drives creativity, what drives an artist, uh, in particular, uh, the intersection of faith and art. Uh, that's what we hope to explore on this podcast. On today's episode, I think we will be continuing further last week's conversation, what compels someone to want to create. And we'll also get into a second pitfall that we have seen that can hinder an artist in the pursuit of his or her career. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so, and also we're going to finish our origin stories, which we started in episode one. Instead of, in the first episode we started and we talked about college and what got us to LA to this podcast, this time we're just going to go back and start and give a brief overview of our childhood and our high school years because I'd mentioned in the last episode about this Michael Apted series of movies called Up. Every seven years he checks in and he started with seven-year-old kids who are now 63 in Britain. And a continuing theme of that series over the years, every seven years when they release when he releases another one of those films is the subjects, the kids say, yeah, a lot of what I was as a kid by even seven was actually, is actually indicative of who I am as an adult now. And it has had ramifications throughout my whole life. So I think it'd be nice since we're talking about our personal journeys in this to just go and say, let's look at your story, Michael and mine very quickly and uh, just see where we go. Because I, I know that our stories from youth, I know for me are going to come up over and over again as we share in this series uh, our struggles. So let's uh, let's get into it. <laughs> you know, Chris, as we were talking about this, you, you mentioned a story that really affected me. And I think it affected me because one, I could relate to it. Two, I think it's, it, it's something everyone can relate to because it is the human story. But it was a story of when you were on a track in high school. Can you want to tell that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So recently, as we were preparing to do this podcast, I started thinking about how far back can I go to realize the moments in my life where I was starting to, things were, were coming undone in some ways. Things were, there's something off that was going to have a major impact on my inability to function or to be as useful or as, I don't know if that's the word, but as as ready and able to do the things that God would put before me, in particular with creativity, with, with art, because I felt he put a burning passion in me by the time I was in high school. I thought I wanted to be an audio engineer, but I in college, I worked in a studio and I started going that direction. I was like, no, that would drive me nuts being in a room for a month working on one song or six six months on one song if I was working with you too. If I was Brian Eno or something, it was like, no way, that's not going to happen. But I started thinking back, man, how far back can I see where things where I was already fearful of failure, fearful of criticism, and fearful of putting myself out there. And that had ramifications that have gone for decades to this day. So yeah, thanks for asking about that. So the the track story is this. First week of high school, 1985, I don't know if I should say that year, but I'm going to admit it, you could do the math. First, First week of high school, it was early September, 85, freshman, Catholic school, and we were doing track because the weather was still warm enough. It was in New Jersey, weather's still warm enough. You're, you're doing track that time of year. So the track was all groups of five to six kids were put out on the racetrack and had to do one lap, 400 meters, one lap around the college track, and that track ran around the football field. I got on that track. I was one of the last groups to to be put up there. I was a plump, chunky kid. I was probably 30 pounds, 35 pounds, 40 pounds overweight, had never really done any serious working out. I had a lot of eating issues. I had some serious overeating issues, which are directly related to what we're talking about in this podcast. Why was I hiding and burying myself in food rather than being creative and creative and getting out there and doing stuff? Because I felt this constant sense of being thwarted in my own mind, like, I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm trapped. Um, so here I am, freshman, 
And I'm on the track, and I wound up getting put on that track with, I believe, four other girls. So it was me, a guy, plump, overweight, wearing glasses, and four and f- three other women, four other girls, four other girls, whatever age we were at that time. We were 14, 15 years old, 15. <sighs> and I'm like, I got to show off. I'm a guy. I got to do this. I've, I can't let these girls beat me. I'm. I, there's just no way. I've, I've, I'm starting out high school. So... I'm ready. And I'm like, hey, I've been on a soccer team since I was seven years old. Every year in the fall. Surely I'm going to be fine doing this, even though I'm plump and overweight. The teacher goes, go. And I take off. And I'm like, ha, 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 pumping it, pumping it. And I'm dusting these other girls. One of whom I later find out is a track runner and is going to be running track for the high school. And I'm dusting. I'm like, ha, ha, thank goodness. Oh, man, my lungs are burning, but I'm I'm okay. I'm gonna preserve my malehood. <laughs> oh my gosh! And my and my thighs, like that, kaboom, start seizing up in agonizing, like life life seizing, energy sapping pain where I couldn't move my legs. It didn't matter that my lungs were burning; my thighs collapsed. And I was probably only just at the 100-yard mark, maybe 150. So I still had more than half the track to go. And I wound up, I pushed for a few more seconds and my hamstrings, everything locked up. And I wound up having to come to a grinding halt and I was barely able to walk. I thought I might not be able to walk off the track. (laughs) So I was, I slugged my legs like they were crutches. Kaboom, kaboom. Here goes the track runner. Here goes another girl who I have no idea what her background was. She comes by the track run a few seconds later. Here comes the girl who was completely disinterested, looked like she'd rather have been anywhere else and had probably never run a track a day in her life by me. The only person left is a really heavy set girl who's bigger than me, tall, big girl. Uh, and she's walking too. She can barely, she, she's not going to huff it either. And at that point, all that was going through my mind is I just have to keep sludging my legs and just, just do whatever it takes to just get off that track before she does. And it was the most brutal 200 meter movement in my life. By the time I was getting to the finish line, I kept looking over my shoulder and fortunately for me, which was ridiculous because it made no sense and didn't matter to anybody at that point. I beat this other girl, but by the time I got to the finish line, the entire class had already moved on to track and field stuff in the middle of the football field. Nobody even cared, but no doubt people had already chugged that away in their brain. Look at this loser, chubby kid who couldn't even run 150 meters. So that's devastating. But here's the shocker in it that I had just mentioned. I had been playing soccer in the fall for the town, the town team since I was seven and I'm, I'm 15. So how on earth isn't a kid who's been playing soccer for eight years, how on earth can this kid not run even 200 meters without collapsing? And therein lies the root of a lot of problems that have plagued me about failure and and also giving up, which is why we talked, you and I, Michael, on the first episode, how we don't like to quit. I don't like to quit now because I did a lot of quitting when I was younger. But sometimes not knowing when to quit is also bad too. When I was younger, I quit too easy and I quit a lot. And when it came to physical activities, I never worked hard on soccer in soccer when I was on the team because I felt I surely I can never get that good. I'm never going to be good like these other kids. And surely, and does this matter to me at the end of the day? Like I do like being on a team, but is this really important? This is just a recreational sport that I do on Sundays anyway. And literally, I only did that sport on Sunday. There were, if there were practices, when I was a little younger, I'd go to them. But as I got older, I started working. So it made it harder to go to practices. And I made excuses. So I fi- found myself in that track that day. And it did not really dawn on me until many years later, <laughs> like recent years, that, wow, there was such a major problem in the way I was seeing the world and the way I was behaving. And God, the Father, was not going to be able to use me and 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 have me do the work that I think he had set out for me to do because I wasn't even ready to work hard, but I also wasn't willing to to trust him that he actually had given me gifts that could be amazing that somebody else may not possess. I just could refuse to believe it. My esteem was so low um, 
when I was younger, I hadn't started out with those esteem issues in the same way. I had actually kind of got along and had lots of friends. It wasn't until I started moving through middle school into high school that I started having more of these issues. So, so anyway, we'll talk more of this will come up, but that's kind of a little bit of a overview of my life from seven years old to high school. There were some major issues, um, that were holding me back and they would, they would be like, they would be like that proverbial weight around the neck when you're in the, you're in the lake and, and it's pulling you down underwater and you can't get up. So Michael, do you have anything yeah, like that? Um, Is there anything in your story? Pretty, pretty similar actually. And I just, it's amazing to me, childhood experiences from our childhood and how we don't even see it, but they do affect us in so many ways, even as we get older. I think for me, the one that really comes out or the memory that I had when I was sort of planning these conversations was my eighth grade year in junior high. Now I was always the smallest kid, uh, skinniest, had not hit my growth spurt. Uh, source of deep demoralization for me too, by the way. Uh, but I wanted to play football. That was my biggest dream. And I could run I could run pretty fast and I could catch the football pretty well too. So it wasn't outside the realm of logic, I guess, that I would want to go out for football. At the same time, I was the smallest kid in my class almost. So I remember first day of tryouts, I went out and they gave me this uniform that literally <laughs> like puppy's ears, shoulder pads, just like drooping off my shoulders, pants, almost like that movie Lucas, you know, in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, and I went out there and obviously I'm not a defensive person because I'm not big enough to make tackles. So I'm, I'm a receiver. Receiver, that's what I do. So I went out and I expected them to say, okay, go into the receiver group. And the assistant coach kind of barked at me, you're on defense. And I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or not, but <laughs> I was just like, defense? You know? So anyway, we um, we started playing and they would, um, the coach would blow the whistle, they'd snap the ball, the play would get called dead. But this one kid, he was like the biggest, most muscular ripped dude in the class named Reggie Lyons, just a titan among <laughs> mutants, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a titan among non or puny, puny uh, yeah, the puny, the puny. Uh, uh, yeah, every folk. play after they had whistled it dead, he would chase me around the field until he could hit me and push me to the ground. And everyone was laughing. The coaches were laughing. I would get up and then snap the play again. It would whistle dead. Reggie would chase me around until he could throw me to the ground. And this happened all practice long and finally sun went down they can't you know they ended practice i went to the locker room and changed my parents were out of town interesting interestingly enough that week and my grandmother was staying with us and my grandmom was one of those that you don't mess with her grandkids like do not mess with (laughs) so she picked me up and i went out and i had scrapes and cuts all over me and i got in the car and right away it was like what happened to you and i was like meemaw don't worry about it. Just drive. Just drive. Nope. She gets out of the car, <laughs> finger wagging, <laughs> goes and reams the coach out. Uh, and I'm like slunk down in the seat. Please, no. Uh, anyway, got home that night, sick feeling in my stomach. Would I ever go back to that practice? And next day came, I think I even had my clothes in the locker all day long, kind of waffling back and forth. School let out that day, debating it, and I didn't. I got my clothes and I went home, and my football career dream ended. Football dream ended right there. So, I think there is a lot. There are a lot of lessons there for me. I had another one in high school where I did quit again. Uh, again, it was athletics, uh, and it it led to a lot of shame with me, shame that I'd given up, and I think those experiences for me, kind of led me to this place of, I can't quit anymore. I'm ashamed of having quit in the past. I will not Mm. do it again. And so when you have this drive in you, whether it be athletics, business, I don't know, art, music, for me, it was was music, it was writing. Uh, I was writing songs, lyrics. You don't 
and you're good enough, you may not be great. That's I think that's a problem. I was good enough to pursue music, film, acting, writing. You never ask the question, how good is good enough? So I think that was, it leads to the idea of that giving up, that quitting. Mm. So I had determined, I can't do that again. I can't give up. So mm. I would rather mm. fail than not take the risk. So that's what I did. I mean, I after college, I moved to LA and then to Seattle to pursue these things. The, the thing I need to add is that everyone has something that they trust in. You're not going to pack your bags, move to New York, LA, whatever, Seattle, unless you believe in something that is helping you. For me, I had just refound a faith in God. And once when that happened for me, I remember a pastor told me, he told me there was a quote by Augustine, and I mentioned this last week, mm -hmm. but the idea is trust God and do what you want to do. So for me, who doesn't really have that quit switch anymore because past shame has crushed it, also this idea of a God that you want to worship now, taking care of you, for me that was... It was never and never even a decision. Of course, I'm going to move across the country to pursue to sing in a band when I had never sung in a band before. So I have a question for you. When you say, and I said it before, we've learned I'm not going to quit. Uh, and it's better. You just said it's better to find out, well, am I going to fail and to, to pursue things? I felt that same way, too. But what's interesting Tell me if in any sense you feel this way. I've said, okay, I'm willing to do things and fail. But when I talk about the failures that I've had and the failures that I was fearful of, I wasn't afraid of failing at everything I did or taking huge risks. Like that was like, nobody takes a risk in some of these crazy things. Move to LA. You want to act and be a musician in Seattle. And I want to come and get into editing. And then I want to move up and produce and create my own content and my own stories. Like those are crazy, wild, big dreams. And a lot of people fail. And it's okay if you don't, if you don't succeed because people know everybody, most people fail at that. But what I was afraid of failure were the things that were deeply personal in my heart, which means, for instance, storytelling, Amen. writing songs, yeah. or producing music. If I fail at that, it doesn't matter if most people don't do it. If I put my heart on line Amen. and fail, man. I don't want to fail. So there's a difference between what we're talking about. You and I hate quitting, and are, but are okay with taking risks to fail. There's a certain type of failure that we are, yes, at least I'm scared of, and I was for a long the time. Hardest. It's the hardest. Um, it's the hardest yeah, to do. And, yeah. and I, you make a great distinction, Chris. I, I must confess that I, I fully, not only can I relate to that, it's been one of my biggest struggles for 20, 25 years now. The Because everything is riding on this. You have sold everything you have pursued this at all costs and against all mm -hmm. yeah. odds uh cliche that may be and to then run the risk of hearing you're not good enough that is demoralizing and i think writing is singing when you a lot of insecurity there yes uh, acting, yes. I think writing probably probably highlights that insecurity the most. When you put your stuff out there, oh my gosh, people people will say they don't read their Amazon reviews. No, <laughs> they do. And every one of those reviews stings. Man, I knew... I will go back to that. I will go away from writing, but there was a woman, I was in an acting class for years, and there was a woman in there, and this woman was amazing. Um, strong jawline, intensity, could have been on a cop show or, you know, in Law and Order or any of these shows playing the tough-as-nails lawyer or cop. 
Uh, but she hit 30. And you, I saw it. Her confidence got shattered. And that is true. Uh, confidence can be riding this crest and then the smallest of things. So her agent sent her out on an audition where she had to play like a 22-year-old kind of bleach blonde, you know, scantily dressed woman. And I actually, I was on that audition and I went, I saw her that day and it was so out of type for her. And I remember leaving there thinking, not only, I mean, she won't get this part because she's better than it first off and it's, it's way beneath her, but this is going to wreck her confidence exacerbate that insecurity even more than it was and uh it's crazy man it's uh that that insecurity of not being good enough i think you're right it's taking a risk and pursuing something is something we all want to do but when you're pursuing a career in this and then the idea or even if you submit your stuff for review or you let a friend read a story you've written, or you let you loan your demo tape of your band out to a, a friend or a stranger. Those few days, I mean, they are they are tough. You are every day that get passes where the person has not responded. It's this cycle beating yourself down. They didn't like it. They hated my stuff. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I what am I doing here? <laughs> and I think every artist knows it. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a beatdown and it's yeah. really tough. And I would just say one thing: like when you were talking about that, I realized too, when it comes to creativity and re revealing something to people, yes, there's a there's a sense that you're putting your heart on the line. That this is a this is something where you're exposing some of your most intimate the the most intimate aspect of yourself. Even if you're writing, say you're writing a story, or you're writing a song and lyrics. And it's something or you're painting a painting and it's something that I really feel I've captured this feeling that I have in my heart that I want to get out. And then you put it out there and people just, they don't connect with it or, and sometimes it's, you may have the wrong audience or it may be, you do have that art in you and you have that idea and you can execute it, but you didn't get it out. And then people expose the stuff that was in your head that you didn't realize, oh, I, I feel it and what I put down there captures it to enough to encapsulate the feeling for me, but it's not enough for somebody who's not in my head. And what I wanted to say about the failure, which I've, I've come to realize, I think in this past year, much more than ever before, at the end of last year, beginning earlier this year, as we've been working on some audio dramas that we've been writing and we were editing and hammering away at them, I realized that I quite often never put as much critical eye into hammering away at my own stuff to get it to be better that I do with other people's stuff. As an editor, I'm trained in editing, it's always much easier for me to say, I can see how I can make your work better. And sometimes it's right. I'm actually putting in, because I'm putting in part of my own heart into somebody else's work to say, I want you to succeed and I want it to be great. But when I do it with my own stuff, I feel exhausted. And I don't actually, it's a weird it's almost like I don't even know how to explain it, but at times when I'm doing my own work, I feel tired, like I don't have the energy to put that kind of scrutiny into my own stuff. So it's got to come out right, which puts this tremendous pressure and sets you up for failure. I don't have the same energy to criticize even my own work as an editor, because I have to wear that hat where I'm I'm creating stuff and I got that hat on of creativity. Then I pull it off and I put the critical editing phase, get rid of all the fat and the garbage and, and if stuff is bad, it's got to be redone. But when I put that hat on and it's my own stuff, I don't want to be as critical. Some of it's because I I don't have the energy and some of it's maybe I, I don't want to, there's a little bit of fear of me. I don't even know if it's fear, just there's like this switching the gears, it's hard to do. And one thing I would, I would relate it to, I've noticed... And I think a lot of people might appreciate this during COVID lockdown. A lot more people are baking and they're cooking than they used to, doing all kinds of dishes. And, you know, my wife and I, we do a lot of cooking and baking. And I've been doing a lot of stuff for years because when you and I, Mike, have been single for a long time, I realized quite some time ago, if I could learn how to cook desserts, make ice cream, do certain things, I could get the ladies interested. <laughs> so I I realized that that skill some years ago. But I've always noticed, even back then, when I had some ulterior motives like 
I'm doing this because I want people to come over. And if I can do decent food and make desserts, people come over who won't come over otherwise. Living in Los Angeles, you got to use tricks to pe- pull people into friendships because it's so easy to just say, I don't have time. But I notice that whenever I cook anything or make anything, it never tastes as good as it does if somebody else does it. No matter how decent something turns out, no matter how much how decent ice cream turns out, it it never tastes as good to me as if somebody else made it. And hmm. I think I, I suspect it's I mean, it's something psychological. And I'm wondering, I'd love to know if other people experience that, too, in their work. But as an editor, when you put the cap on and now you have to be the critic, it's very hard to do it because if I made it, it's really hard for me to see it. And that's the objectivity thing that, you know, artists do talk about. But it's the heart expressing myself and being fearful combined with if it's my own stuff do i want to hammer away at, and find the deepest levels of my failing I'm not even what other people say if i know that i didn't do something as well now i'm contending with my own yeah. reality it's like epically much worse and that has been very hard to deal with and i think i would say this year as we this past year we were polishing up some audio dramas we're working on which we are going to share with this audience listening to this podcast uh, that we really like doing and, and think we did some really good work in it. Uh, man, it was hard for me to hammer away at my own stuff and hammer away and walk away and say, this isn't just quite right. And I'm happy with hammering away at Mike Green's stuff and telling him that this stuff doesn't work and <laughs> saying how I have to re-edit stuff. But when it comes to my own, I'm like, that's not quite working, but I don't know if I have the energy to do it. But then my finally, that sense of me saying, no, you have to you have to take criticism and you have to even be critical of your own stuff because the best people, when you, when you listen... And I, and I think we will, you know, as we're talking, as the series goes on, we will bring in quotes and more information, not just Augustine, but others who have said, you know, authors, for instance, who have said they don't treat their, their work with great, with great kid gloves and, and care. They're like, I'm willing to throw away uh, Robert McKee, who's the guy who wrote the book Story, on Story, who's the legendary guy that everybody goes to to tell them how to write screenplays. I do appreciate he gives percentages and says for the young writers and young can be any age, but newer at doing it, you should be prepared to throw away 90%, 80, 90% of what you're doing. And I think a lot of times he's right in that percentage, but that's painful. That's agonizing. And I've had to come to terms with, yeah, I better be willing to really gut and cut my stuff down. Uh, (laughs) And that's been, that's been tough. So anyway, I just wanted to interrupt. Yeah. If I write humility comes back man, to humility. I, um, yeah, I couldn't listen probably my entire time in Seattle, and I was playing in. I mean, I was singing in bands. I couldn't listen to myself on tape. There was just too much self judgment there. And then even when I was pursuing acting, I mean, that's the worst. I mean, that is the worst. Uh, the self judgment that goes into play there is. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to describe when you walk into an audition and there are forty men there that, in your mind, are better looking, are more talented, uh, are better suited for the role, and you're trying to actually not be in your head judging yourself as you're waiting to be called in, and then when you get called in, to actually try to be vulnerable in front of someone let emotion come out when you're in your head the whole time going, am I doing good? Am I doing, do they like me? Do they like me? How do I sound? How do I look? Uh, it took me years to get over that. And I think it does. It probably took me longer than, than most to get out of the, to get out of my head. But every actor and every performer and every writer is going to face that. Uh, and I did, I do remember it after several years, here's the tension right here. The only way to get out of that is to not give a, a rip anymore about right. someone's mm-hmm. approval. But mm-hmm. you still need that person's <laughs> approval. You still need to be good if you are going to to win a role, if you will. Or get a publishing, get a publishing deal yeah. for your book or get an yeah. audience. So yep. it's this weird tension. The only time you can be free and actually out of your head and in the moment doing what you want comes when you reach a point of saying, I don't give a rip anymore. And I reached that at that point. I had I was so fried from the the grind of LA that it, it came too late, I think. And then I switched to writing. But 
that moment when you actually get to that point of, I don't care anymore. It's pretty awesome, man. When you can be on a stage and doing whatever you want to do, uh, every instinct that's coming to you, free to do it. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And that's what keeps us doing. It's what keeps us creating. Yes. And so you getting to that point, when you look at and read biographies and interviews with people who've been successful in so many different areas of creativity, they generally say what you just said. You you have to get to a point to where you're okay, you don't care. And your life isn't dependent on whether your art or your work is is well received. That doesn't mean that you have to be that you should not be concerned and be ready for criticism to humble yourself and get better. But you can't worry about your identity being crushed. And that's where your identity in Jesus, your identity, your identity in the Lord, if you if you truly give that up and say, I know, I know the Father loves me, and I know that even in whatever creative bent that he's given me, whatever desires, I can pursue them. It doesn't matter how it comes out. It doesn't matter. As long as I know that I'm I'm following him and I'm and I'm and I know that no matter what I do, he loves me. And it's okay. And here's the thing, when you when you start looking at things that way, you realize other people aren't as critical as you think they are. When you're concerned about how other people think, you I have found this in my life, and this is 30 years of me living as younger through my teen years into my early adulthood through my 30s, I was always assuming that people were more critical of me than they were in everything, even in my art. Way more critical because I was hypercritical of myself and I was hypercritical of other people because I was so worried, even though I'd said, and I knew, and I was a Christian and I was I was walking with the Lord, but in this area, man, the enemy had me under his, under his heel, that my identity as a creative individual was not mm-hmm. in God. It was in, it was in my view of how I thought the world saw me. And, and if people happen to not like what I was doing, oh, forget it. And that's the, the difference is when you can let go, but you let go in a healthy way because you're trusting God, man, he can do amazing things. That's when, I, I don't know, do you feel this way? Here's, here's a question I have for you. I've struggled with this for a long time where there's a switch in my brain that goes like that, where if I'm overly concerned about how people are going to take what I'm doing, there's this wall of analysis and logical approach, and there's a and there's other stuff going on, psychological, even fear tucked in there, that I can't operate anywhere near on the same level of creativity because I'm over I'm thinking and analyzing how do I do this the best way, and all that creativity and spark that comes from not worrying is gone or mostly gone. Some of it may be there because there's a logical part of my brain that shifts. It's like the shift between left brain and right brain. You need a lot of your right brain, the creative part to really do well. But when I get worried, that part of my brain, the 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 part of my brain, the right brain stops working and I go into left brain analysis and I it kills me. And uh, being more free, I especially feel the last year to the last year and a half, the two years really really last year, I just felt like, wow, I feel like both sides of my brain are working because I, it's okay. It's okay that if I do something and it's terrible, that's f- fine. I can, it's not my identity. It's not the maximum yeah. of what I'm capable of. So, um, I think that you touch on what you touched on is, is, is pretty, is pretty, uh, poignant for me, even when I moved to LA, when you're pursuing something that there's no linear path and any of these art forms, there's no linear path. I mean, you can't go to school, start at the bottom rung of a ladder, move up. Like if you are an accountant or a pharmacist, I don't know. Um, but what that does is that you realize how competitive it is. And the only way that you can make it, excuse me, is to hustle all the time never stop promoting yourself. And I and I would probably wager that it's even worse now with the heightened technology we have and the need to bolster your your image, uh, your online presence. But I saw that when I moved here and started joining acting classes, started going out. Um, like when I was in Seattle, I think my life was very grounded. I was playing music, but I was also swamped 
in church community, deep friendships, relationships. Uh, so it kept me, I was doing homeless ministry, serving at church. So there was a, a, an ideal balance there. And I moved here and I mean, you see it right away. I mean, you have to be promoting yourself morning to night, every day. And what it does is it fosters self-absorption. And I stepped into my first acting class and I realized that right away. I mean, everyone is looking to get that advantage for themselves. And I, I did. I mean, I, I kind of won. <laughs> I said to myself, I don't want to hang out with actors, you know, so I started hanging out with, you know, other people, but, <laughs> but too, I, I realized I can't let that happen to me. I can't become that self absorbed all the time. So, I mean, I, I was very fortunate. I found a great church. And that's where I met you and got involved with great ministry, homeless ministry, uh, tons of service opportunities to serve others and also to build great relationships and friendships. And I think we've both been very blessed since we, we've been here. We've had deep friendships to sort of keep us grounded. Uh, that said, it takes almost that level of self-promotion if you're going to succeed. And when you're all the time thinking about it, I do remember when I, back in the early days of moving here and I was just starting the pursuit of a film and I was playing music still, but I would go to church on Sunday and there was this period after the service where everyone would congregate in the courtyard and just chit chat for 20, 30 minutes. And there's, you know, there's 150 people out there, many of whom are actors. So instantly your Sunday, you're judging yourself against someone. It's like, and I remember I would just sit there and go, this is my Sunday, and all the everyone out there is is, is already in networking mode, you know, trying to get you know a leg up by meeting someone who's going to further their career. And I remember just exhausted, going, "It's Sunday, and I don't get a reprieve from that." But that's the way it was, and the self that is that is a huge warning. It's a huge pitfall. Mm -hmm. I think that yeah for me. And I think you could testify that as well. But when you yeah. when you do determine, and you have to determine this because it's not gonna happen naturally. In a city this big, this transient and spread out and isolated, if you don't purposely determine this, then you're gonna have a hard time. But to determine that I'm going to be invested in community service, and also pursue my art. It's stressful, be hugely stressful. You're constantly driving, constantly moving. Um, but at the same time, it's the only way I, I argue that you can do it. And I think the evidence is the people that I know and I've met that are weary from the go, go, go to make their career happen, but also who don't have friendships. So I'm gonna interrupt you. When you said the only way you can do it, you mean the only way you can do this art pursuit is if you have these other godly anchors in your life. Is that what you mean? Like serving or being involved in a community of people uh, to keep you, to some extent, to keep you from completely falling into a self-focus. I mean, is that what For you me, meant? For me, yes. Or? I mean, I, I hesitate to okay. say, only there uh for me mm -hmm. my faith yeah. is my identity yeah uh so i'm yeah. sure that there are those that don't share my faith but also serve and give give of themselves in their time to serve mm -hmm. so I, mm -hmm. I can't say that but for me yeah yeah, yeah. I can, absolutely yeah i think i would agree that my version especially in the early years when i was out here first like ah. Oh, probably seven, eight years, I did a lot of side work. No matter what job I was doing, I was doing a lot of side hustling, which was technical stuff. 
I mentioned in my introduction, the first episode that I even worked on like a website project that failed. And I was always hustling to learn things on the weekends because I thought this is going to help me get to a better place and be a creative who has more control over my, my career. But I also, I, you know, I put a lot, I was always working on something and in the, the first, again, five, six, seven years that I lived out here, I was working Saturdays, Sundays, always. I never took time off. I mean, I would take some time off, but I never took a day off. And it was this sense of, yes, just like you said, Michael, I need, I need people in my life. I need to be anchored to a church. I need to have projects like doing some form of outreach so that, so that I know I'm as a believer, I'm doing some kind of minimal evangelism. I'd like to do much more, but at least something and being in people's lives is really important. And if I didn't have that, it would have been more like the very first couple of years I got out here when I didn't have a strong church. I came out and I was looking and that, and I literally worked seven days a week. And I mean, even Saturday and Sunday nights, I'd be working on side projects, sometimes 11, 12 at night. We'd have PBS on because we didn't have cable. We'd have PBS on. I might be watching a Nova documentary or some wildlife thing or who knows what. And I'd be sitting in front of the computer and the TVs like over here. And sometimes even my roommate back at the time, we both might be working on stuff. And it was like it never ended. And that was not healthy. That was a and I wasn't searching to get to a better church situation and to get around other believers those first two or three years. And that was very unhealthy. Um, and, And guess what? Some of the things I was doing, like the web project I was working on, failed. So there's this sense, too, of if you're not making God as much of a priority and you're focusing, sure, you go to church and maybe you're in a community group, but you're not focusing a lot of time on the Word and on on, on the Lord, He, your endeavors may fail pretty dismally because you're self-absorbed and He doesn't want you to do that. And that's what we talked about before, about failure being good because it keeps us humble because we're asking the Lord to keep us humble. And he's saying, I'll keep you humble. I'll fail the stuff that you're doing. That's yeah. not good. Um, but the key is that anchoring to help us as believers, whatever. And if you're, if you're not a, if you don't, you're not a Christian or you're not a, you feel like being out involved in evangelism or whatever isn't your thing, that's totally cool. But you need to be anchored to something other than yourself. You need to be anchored to Jesus. And Part of that is finding out and being on that quest of what do I need to do to make sure I'm not yeah. being overly overly self-absorbed. And a thing that we find, I think that you and I have seen, I've definitely seen it here in Los Angeles, even if it's not entertainment-based, we as a people generally have a, sen- a tendency of being absorbed in our own lives and not making time for others uh, at our churches. We don't make time to form friendships. If we've had friendships for a long time and maybe when we were younger and we weren't married, we may have some strong bonds from a long time ago, but forming newer bonds as time goes on, and maybe it's because we're older and the social media era is different and you and I are older and we don't engage in the same way, but we're in a city filled with people who, in everything that they do, it feels like they're absorbed in their life, their own lives, and I'm included in it. I'm fighting against this constantly to not be looking out to say, how can I be involved in other people's lives and and reach out and how... And this relates to our work because there's this part of what we want to do as artists is about ministry. It is about evangelism, and it's about caring for people, including people who believe in the Lord, people who don't and people who do. So it's a struggle because we live in this city, and I know other cities are like this because I hear other people telling me uh, when they they don't live in L.A. and they feel the same way. It's very hard to engage with people. It's very easy to be self-absorbed. And when you're an artist, it's even easier because you have to put so much time into your work to get it to make it good that you may have to you may have to put aside time with friends and I'll even admit I used to be a workoutaholic when I when I was in college and when I came here to Los Angeles for many many years it was 7 days a week working out and you and I had a, a friend we haven't seen for years who was a biker and he would he would shove aside hanging out with friends and coming out to social events because he's like, oh, it's going to interfere with my two-hour bike session. And that was every night. That was like, that excuse came up every night. And sometimes I was just like him. And I realized I knew his, that absorption in that because I recognize it for me both in the old way, the old Chris of the workouts and also art and work and saying that this has to be everything. Um, I, I don't have time for other stuff. And that's definitely, there's something wrong with that. And Hopefully we will get more advice yeah. 
as we're going along like how do we deal with this even when it's we're blind to yeah. it you know like i think that i so do you feel pulled? Well, I, yeah i wanted to ask you do you feel a, a I, i've always with that felt that i probably three years ago maybe i i mean i was frustrated i was bitter um i had experienced some real heartache some real disappointment and none of my career pursuits had panned out um and i was definitely getting angry and at the same time i had been leading a bible study at this local homeless shelter and i was leading it with a woman from church and it was great i mean we had a steady group uh, of residents who came to the study every week and we would go to dinner with them and go to movies with them uh, and then the homeless shelter ended up running out of money and the Veterans Administration oh. came along and said, well, we will finance you, but you have to evict all your current residents and take in ex-veterans. Mm. And most of them have substance abuse and medication issues. Uh, there, I got, a, I got attacked. I got assaulted once by a guy strung out. But there was only one guy that came regularly, and he was this meek, timid guy, probably in his mid-60s. And had just gotten out of jail. And he would come with kind of the Quran, a Bible, and like Walden or something. <laughs> and I mean, trying to get him to talk, usually it was just him and me. Uh, that would be it most of the weeks. And trying to get him to talk was uh, pulling teeth. But I finally got to know this guy. I mean, he would reveal very personal things to me. And he had been trying, he was originally from the Bay Area to Santa Clara. And he'd been trying to get transferred to the VA in Santa Clara the whole time that I had been doing it. I had, I had known him briefly in the study. And I just assumed that'll never happen. That's a pipe dream. You do enough um, ministry, you kind of, I think you learn to doubt a lot of what you hear. Uh, but anyway, one night, this was one of the last nights that I, that I was there. He came in and told me that his transfer had gone through and that was going to be his last night. And... Oh my gosh, I uh, it, we did our study and actually two or three people came that week. But after it was over, he kind of said, uh, he actually, when he came in, he goes, notice the painting? And he had said that he was sort of a recreational painter. And I looked over on the wall and there was a painting hmm. of a guy uh, reading a book and drinking a cup of wine or something. And it was, it was better than I could do. And it was good. And he, I said, you did that. And he goes, and he goes, what do you think that book is he's reading? And I was just like, Hemingway, old man in the sea, I don't know. And he goes, I don't know, maybe it's a Bible. I said, okay, uh, that's a good thing. And uh, anyway, after the the uh, the lesson that night, he goes, can I walk out with you? I said, of course. So I walked out with this guy and Dan, and we went to my car. And he goes, I just want to, I just want to thank you. And I was like, thank me for what this is, you know. He goes, you cared. And I'm out, but uh, yeah, you know, man, I I left there, and it was as if all the bitterness, all the frustration, washed away. And it was, you know, if I never have a book that sells. If I never, if anyone never hears a song that I have written, I'm kind of cool with that. This guy thanked me for caring for him. A guy who is yeah. invisible to society. Yeah. And who is unseen by most people. I'm cool with that, man. Yeah, and that's what that's what the father wants. At the end of the day, he didn't it doesn't he doesn't need you to have any success of any level doing anything except serving him in any way and with people that's the key <laughs> just being one-on-one -on -one with people and you and i know i worked with that organization too in a different project and i don't i, I don't have a story like that that's a great story i have stories of people just caring for each other and being thankful but when you say that it's really impactful to me too to remind me uh, all this stuff being absorbed most definitely self-absorbed is we know that that's sin but even more so being willing to say the pursuits that we have that 
that we want for ourselves, the creative things we feel like this is what we really, what we're here on the earth to do may not, may not be what we're here to do. What we're here to do, we know we're here to serve and love others. And we're here to, to communicate the gospel to people through certainly not words alone. Words are much weaker and more paltry and pathetic than compared to actual action. And I think that's a great, your story is a great way wrapping up this episode because the ultimate antithesis of absorption is loving Amen. other people with action, not Amen. words. And that's what we're here for. And the answer as we continue our journey and other people that will, that are watching us and coming along with us, we'll hope to hear some of their stories too, that, you know, this is what God wants for us. He, he, he wants us to love other people. Everything else is just yeah way less important. yeah and to to that point and to wrap up um it it dawned on me as you were talking we started this episode talking about regret of not risking or doing mm. these things but then i realized i think we both realize the biggest regret you would have i would have is at the end of your life realizing i have not loved loved my neighbors myself i have not loved god with all my heart because i was too busy loving myself Mm. that's a far Mm -hmm. bigger regret than not taking a risk and moving to some other city you know or or putting out a demo tape you know it's Mm. and i i think my what i would add to that too is even more when we love people who are harder to love as Christians, we're called to that, and we've bumped into, you and I too, at different times in our walk, have bumped into people who are hard to yeah. show that kind of compassion because they won't tell you how thankful they are and how much it meant to them. They're, but we're still called to that, and that's equally, and maybe in some ways even more valuable to the Lord because the people who are harder to love are the ones who really need, they need Jesus. and yeah it's a great it's a great cap your 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 story to this that this is the antithesis of what what we as artists want to do is put it aside to care and and be christ-like as much in our flawed way as we can for people it's awesome yeah i think that's i think that's a great close and we want to thank everyone for listening we will be back next episode to continue this journey to continue this exploration thanks for listening this has been king of the metal podcast yes thank you everybody good good day (laughs) thanks for listening to king of the middle with michael joe green and chris moore check us out on youtube or facebook if you'd like to see the vidcast version of this podcast 